when I ordained as a monk, <clears throat> a phrase you would hear often um, in the Thai Buddhist community, they describe what you're doing, ordaining in the uh, Buddhist religion as Mop Gai Tawai Chiwit. Mop Gai means to, to bow down, Tawai Chiwit. It's like to make a, an offering of your life to the Triple Gem, to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. It's a phrase that just points to the strong faith they have in the Buddhist community in Thailand and that sense of when you ordain, it's a real offering, wholehearted offering <clears throat> of body, speech and mind to the practice of Dhamma out of respect, gratitude, faith in the Buddha and with the intention of realizing Dhamma, improving one's self and realizing the Dhamma to whatever level one can. Another way of looking at it, Lumpur Cha sometimes used to say that when you take on the robes and the lifestyle of a samana, you become one who has no future. It means when we come into the robes, <coughs> we're setting aside the worldly way of thinking about things, which we may have uh, been our previous habit. When you're living in the world, there's always a future, plans, projects, things we want to do and achieve, ambitions to do with work, our life, our success, what we see as success and happiness based around, usually around material gain, jobs, reputation, all those sort of things. When you come into the robes and start practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, and then that way of thinking starts to dissolve. And it can be quickly seen as a source of suffering. If you're always practicing the bhikkhu life, the samana life, thinking about what you're going to get from it and achieve in the future, then it's a lot of suffering. So you always hear the teaching to come back to the present moment. What should I be doing in my practice? Bring up mindfulness in the present moment. Contemplate in the present moment. Which kilesas or negative mental state should I be addressing? Or whatever one is coming up right now, right here. 
these kind of phrases we hear all the time. Just pointing to the way of practice of a samana is now one who's focusing on the present moment as the most important thing in their practice. What's coming up for you right now in your mind and how are you addressing it with mindfulness and wisdom or craving and attachment. Doesn't mean to say we have no relationship to the future at all, but <clears throat> it's actually a relief when you can set aside that worldly way of planning and projecting into the future. And you're bringing my, your mind to right back to the wisdom that un understands that the future is uncertain and you'll never quite know exactly what's going to happen in the future. But you can be sure that if you put all your effort into developing the path in the present moment, well, that will be the best preparation and the cause for whatever will arise in the future. You'll be able to uh, address it and deal with it with good qualities of mind. Similarly, the past, we can let that go. We don't have to carry our past karma around with us in the sense of always worrying about what we've done in the past. When we come into the robes, we can set aside the past, set aside the future, and focus on the present moment. In the worldly sense, it doesn't sound very exciting, not having a future. It might sound depressing. But when you appreciate why they teach like this, it's actually a great relief. You don't have to get anxious about the future. You don't have to think so much about the future and get lost in those thoughts. Another way Lumpur Chao would <clears throat> bring mindfulness to a candidate for ordination be ask those questions like, are you ready to die? Again, it's letting go of the past. You die from your past habits and attachments, past way of life. You're ready to start a new way of life, a life of a samana. You're ready to die from the kilesis, craving and attachment which is the cause of our suffering. If it isn't good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good. One of his catchphrases. If you're a visitor, a lay visitor or a Akanduka bhikkhu visiting Wapapong, you might well find yourself put into the sala the first few nights, staying next to the skeleton in the glass cupboard. Again, just to remind you of the reality, the impermanence of life, and bringing you right back to the present moment, to the very truth that the Buddha was talking to, pointing to. If you stayed at Ajahn Mahabur's, you got maybe got a slightly 
better experience. You also stayed in the sala. As far as I remember, there wasn't a skeleton there. You stayed next to the relics of the Krubarajan, which obviously are skeletal. They're from the bones of some of the great disciples of Lumpurman. But the same thing, you just immediately put in a place where you give up all your attachment in a very obvious, deliberate way. You <clears throat> don't even have a kuti, you're just in a, a hall, the meditation hall. You fold your robes and a few possessions next to you and keep, keep them there. You let go of everything, at least for those few nights. This is the nature of the samana life. We are letting go in a very deliberate, direct way. We let go of our lay habits very quickly. We shave our head, we wear the robes, eat one meal a day, we're celibate, we give up money and most of our possessions. And we keep a very high standard of sila. There's a purpose to that, there's a point to that. It is a training, training of the mind. Giving you the skills and the tools to really understand the human mind and why we suffer, how to deal with it, to end it. You might say if we don't wish to practice, well then it's just putting off the suffering and quite possibly we'll go back to the world and accumulate more craving and attachment and we'll have to have more suffering in the future. So why put it off? We come into the robes to deal with it directly and to develop the barami and the good qualities that the, the lifestyle brings up quite naturally over time as we practice. word attachment, again, something Lumpocha talked about regularly. Sometimes we translate upadana as attachment, sometimes clinging, grasping. Another way it's used in the suttas is it's the fuel, the fuel that leads to suffering, leads to bhava and jati becoming a birth. It's both the quality of grasping and the function of being fuel for more suffering, more birth, more suffering. So it's a word we use all the time. It's something to reflect on. You know, where where does suffering comes from? It comes from dunha, craving, as a cause for clinging, grasping as a cause for becoming, as a cause for more birth and on to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. The Buddha talked about four types of upadana, clinging. 
the most obvious one, gama upadana, the clinging, grasping at sense objects. Obviously we live in this world, we're always going to have to deal with sense objects. Whatever stage of development you are in your practice, you can't escape the sensual world. Sight, sound, taste, touch, and the mental objects that arise based on those five physical sense objects. We can't escape from that because it's the sensual realm we live in. It's the human realm that we live in. We're always going to have to be dealing with sense contact from day one to the very last moment of our life. Whatever level of practice we're at, whether we feel we're at the very beginning of our practice or in the middle or at the end, you can't escape sense objects. The encouragement then is to practice towards sense objects with mindfulness and wisdom. To learn how to deal with gama, upadana, and clinging to sense objects so that they don't become a source of suffering. You know, to bring up mindfulness as we deal with the sensual realm. So a lot of the Vinaya training is how to develop a sense of moderation and contentment, wise reflection on the amount we use and the way we attain sense contact, sense objects, material wealth, material gains and so on. There's nothing wrong with eating. We need to eat as human beings. We need to eat and drink. We need to protect ourselves from the elements, from extreme heat, extreme cold and so on. Where it becomes clinging and attachment is when it becomes an end in itself, an obsession or an addiction. Obviously this is the wrong lifestyle to be in if that is, is your obsession. There's a bhikkhu you are exposed to a certain amount of sense contact, but it's pretty limited. And if you're seeking that out more and more, then you'll experience a lot of frustration and probably a lot of criticism from other people. It's not the, clearly not the purpose of the lifestyle. But nevertheless, as an experience, it will come up. We see every day the wandering mind, and a lot of that is caught up with seeking out more sense objects, usually seeking out more pleasure through fantasy and imagination and then expectation of maybe small pleasures that are coming up in the course of our day, in the course of our life, or sometimes just fantasies about what may or may not come up in the future. So it's a constant area of practice for us. Maybe that's why it's always listed first, Gama Upadana, how to develop wisdom, mindfulness around this. And sense pleasure and the objects of the senses are obsessive. They're things that fill the mind. They have been filling the mind since day one, since we were born. We have to learn how to deal with that wisely. Learn how not to dwell on 
the objects of our pleasure all the time. It may come up, but I have to establish mindfulness and bring the Dhamma up through wise reflection, yoni manasikara. You apply reflections on impermanence, on the suffering and the lack of self in sense experience. Whenever I go on retreat in the forest here, I always remember the one teaching the Buddha gave how you know, sense objects and sense pleasures, however much you get, there's always a danger. There's always drawbacks with them. One of the similes used is the, the bird that gets the little bit of food. It's just about to enjoy it, but then there's always the problem that there's other bigger birds around will come along and steal it and may, maybe it has to drop the much sought after tidbit of food to protect its very life from a bigger bird who might attack it. Obviously you see that all the time when you eat your meal in the forest and have scraps that you leave for the birds. Every bird has another bird around that's bigger than it. Than it. Whether it's the little sort of sparrow-like birds or the kurawom or the magpies or the crows and ravens or the kookaburras or eventually even the eagle. There's always something around that's bigger that's going to express its sense of ownership of the, of the place and any food in it. And that's the nature of sense objects. You can't really enjoy them anyway because they're impermanent. There's always a fear of losing it or the end of it. When will the end come? Anxiety about when you can get it back again. Yeah, the similes, the dog with the bone, or in our place it might be the fox with the the bone of a dead deer or a dead kangaroo, just constantly chewing on it, hoping to get out that last little bit of juice, but never really being satisfied. And this is the nature of the sensual realm, is it's deluding, catches us out all the time, but we're never finding satisfaction in it. We're always looking for a little bit more juice, a little bit more pleasure, there's always danger lurking around as well. And then it's a matter of applying that kind of reflection when you notice sense desire arising. Having enough awareness to know the content of your mind. Turn your attention back and see sense desire as a cause for clinging, grasping for what it is see how it can lead on to so much suffering, dissatisfaction, discontent. Another great kind of clinging that comes up all the time, especially in the early years in a monastery, is a ditu padana, attachment to views. And how often have we been caught into arguments and discussion, views over the Vinaya, over the Dhamma, over the way of practice, different teachers' approaches, different monasteries, different aspects of the, the Dhamma, or sometimes even between religions or sects, 
going beyond that, you know, politics or whatever else it is in the world that people attach to with views. But even the Dhamma can become a basis for Upadana when we attach so strongly that it becomes something that fuels the sense of self. And how often you might have noticed yourself or others getting caught into arguments where you maybe you're boxed into a corner but because you're attached to your view you have no choice but to keep defending it sometimes even to the even at the point where you you realize it's not really making much sense anymore but because of the strong grasping to the view a sense of self a conceit is there as well you just argue away as they say, the easiest way to stop that argument is just to say, oh, you may be all right, I'm wrong. There's nothing more to argue about. Even the Dhamma can be, become a basis for <clears throat> views and the suffering that comes from holding on to views, let alone differences with other aspects of human existence other religions, politics and so on. And the way of clinging is it always brings up a sense of self. This is who I am, whether it's clinging to sense desire, this is what I want, what I like, this is good for me. Views on what we think are right or wrong, correct, incorrect. Silopata Upadana, clinging to rules and observances. How often do we get caught into our view on the right way of doing things in the monastery? Even the Vinaya, which was given to us by an enlightened Buddha, can still become a basis for dispute dissatisfaction as we argue about it, or have different views on it, or our own personal beliefs and views on the right way to practice, even things that are not really directly to, with the Vinaya, just the right way of doing things. And then spreading out from that all our cultural conditioning, depending on our upbringing, which country, what kind of background we have whether we're Asian or European or from US or anywhere, Australia, New Zealand, there'll be a whole set of cultural conditioning that can be interpreted as an attachment to rules and observances. And people argue about very ordinary things, how short the grass should be cut when you should have a bonfire. You could even say this is attachment to rules and observances. Doesn't mean to say it's all wrong, but when it becomes clinging, it's a blind clinging, and we fumble around, not being sure of what is the path that leads to the end of suffering, what's not. So people can even fight and argue over different rules and observances. With conceit, we can look down, disparage others who we don't think do things quite as well as we do or in the way we do, the way we think is right. We can also have very superstitious beliefs, thinking we're doing something will definitely get us towards Nibbana or enlightenment or 
heaven. So in the time of the Buddha, it was all those practices like imitating a cow, imitating a dog, fasting, standing on one leg and so on. And not so much of that around today, but certainly many different kinds of cultural conditioning that might fall into this category of a certain type of clinging. It can even come up in very good situations, you know, practicing. We practice as Buddhist monks, we can still cling to to the practices we do. I remember I had quite a bit of difficulty when I was looking after Lumpur Cha. We used to do Upataka shifts, attending to him, four monks per shift. And there's always one monk who was designated by Lumpur Liam as the head monk, usually more experienced in age and time than the others, and trusted at least to a certain extent, I hope. And then the other three would have to follow the lead of the, the leader of the group. It was a very refined kind of thing, looking after Lumpur Chan. It was a very established ways of doing everything. The medical treatments, the cleanliness, the ways of dressing him, changing his uh, bedding and so on. There were very established ways of doing it. But even within that, there was room for a little bit of change. So each group of monks might bring in their own slight variations. But I remember so much dissatisfaction or sometimes arguing opinions about the best way to fold a robe, the best way to change the bedclothes and so on. And usually it didn't bring up too much suffering, but you could see this tendency towards attachment to the right way of doing things, criticizing others. You know, some monks more aware of it than others. Remember one particular shift, you do a two-week shift, and you had no choice who you were put on shift with. That was up to Lumpur Liam. You just had to accept it. Most of the time it was fine. I remember one time there was one monk who was particularly attached to his own way of doing things and got very grumpy with others if they didn't follow his way of doing things. So there was quite a bit of friction in the group. And he was always telling everyone off for doing it the wrong way, even though other monks, maybe more senior, had done things in a different way in the past. So it really kept you on your toes to keep your nerve, keep you calm. Generally, he was doing a good job, so there wasn't much you could say, but still, it's very difficult because you're always doing things differently than the way he liked. It was so, so particular. And at the end of the shift, everyone breathed a sigh of relief because after two weeks of... Uh, having this monk tell us what to do all the time in a very kind of bossy way. It was time to have a change. I actually was going on another shift for two weeks with another set of monks, but it was a change. But as we were changing over, the very last thing that we did, we used to have to put a bottle, um, urine bottle, plastic urine bottle for Lumpur when he was lying down on the bed. 
And one of the big fears of the attendant monks was always that this might get knocked over and urine would go everywhere, soiling the sheets and making a mess. And that very rarely happened because people were so attentive and loved Lumpur so much they would never let that happen. But of course you never could be completely sure because it was underneath the sheets and you couldn't always see it. And this very bossy monk who had given everyone a hard time he just walked out of the the room and one of the things he used to do was stand at the cha's room and shout through the window barking instructions what the monks the rest of us if we were inside what we should be doing trying to find fault or seeing fault with things and he barked an instruction through the window and said oh, Lumpur's sheets are not straight we should straighten the sheets so two of us went over and we had to lift the sheet up to straighten it and then we realized that the urine bottle had spilt urine all over the bed and it had been that monk who had just walked out who had put the bottle there and obviously hadn't done his job properly so we just quietly told him through the window oh, you've spilt urine everywhere so he had to rush back in to clean it all up which is a big job because he had to clean all the robes and change the sheets and everything and uh, one of the other monks couldn't resist and just started chanting Anicca Vata Sankara over and over again it's like a bit of or just a reflection on how even the one who thought he was perfect couldn't be perfect and it's very impermanent even in in the monastery even next to an enlightened teacher Sila Bhattabharamasa comes up and causes suffering in our minds and in, sometimes in the group the last kind of clinging that's hardest to see maybe but most important is Atawada Upatana just clinging to the belief of a self a soul some kind of essence that it's unchanging, it's always there, and even from life to life, never changes. The one they say that the Sotapanna sheds, you know, they no longer see the Kandas as self, and believe in a sense of self, they understand that these Kandas are impermanent, conditioned things that are arising and ceasing all the time. And the only way to deal with clinging, obviously, is to keep going back to the source of upadana clinging, which is dhanha, and to keep applying mindfulness and wisdom there over and over again. Obviously, the firmer your mindfulness becomes, the more effort you put into establishing mindfulness, bringing it up, then the more chance you have to see craving arising and cutting it off, gradually reducing the strength of the grasping, reducing the fuel for more becoming and birth. So over and over again, our, the teachings we receive are to keep establishing this firmness of mind that comes when this 
awareness of the present moment and not letting your mind drift so absent-mindedly into liking and disliking different forms of craving and attachment. And at first that's very frustrating because we haven't done it much before so the mind is always dropping away. And we maybe seem to be more absent-minded than mindful. And you just have to accept that. The important thing is to understand the process and understand what we should be doing and what, how, to, how to deal with craving and attachment. You establish right view. Recognize these qualities for what they are as the cause of suffering. Ajahn Chah said, if you do nothing else for five years, as say, as a Nawaka Bhikkhu, just establish right view and you'll be enlightened already. I mean, if you really understand, you rec you've got to the point where you can recognize craving and attachment for what it is. You know it's the cause of suffering. You know it's that which has to be abandoned, even if you can't abandon it yet, but you just know what, what you have to do. It's like your mind is set on the road to Nibbana. It's inclining towards enlightenment already. However much of a reserve of craving and attachment you still have, well, everyone's different. The important thing is establish that ability just to stop, establish mindfulness, reflect wisely, yonisomanasikara, back on your own mental experience and see this is what it is. Craving is like this, it leads to suffering. Or if you're having suffering, to seek back to see where the craving and attachment is, is the source. And it's about developing the patience and the willingness just to keep doing that, keep practicing. If you keep looking into the future, how long am I going to have to do this? When am I ever going to get anywhere in the practice? Well, you're back to suffering again, back with the future, and then Nibbana might seem very far away. Attainments of the noble path or samadhi seem very far away. So we feel very dis disheartened. We feel we can't do it. We don't really need to do it that way. We can just focus on today, practicing this moment, this day, establishing the right view, treating whatever's coming up with mindfulness and wisdom. You might call this wisdom developing samadhi. We don't know we don't really need to think about when we'll attain jhana or different states of the noble path. But we can bring mindfulness to the present moment and whatever's arising start to recognize its qualities. You know, to see feelings, memories, thoughts as impermanent. And the more you see that, the more you see things rising and ceasing in your experience, the more you come to, to know that is the nature of physical and mental experience. It arises, it ceases. Whether you're focusing just on cessation a lot, or even just you practice the point where you know as soon as something's arising, you know it's bound to cease anyway, so the mind 
doesn't get so fascinated with it. And you go back to say, go back to Gama Upadana. As we, we do experience different sense objects, sense pleasures. It just becomes familiar with that whole process. Whatever you indulge in with your senses, whether it's internal with the mind or with the five external senses, the feeling, the memory, the thought formations that will arise based on that sense contact will just arise and cease. However much we cling to it, it won't last. Just become very, very familiar with that. And then you teach yourself. And the word Lumpur Chao would use is Toroman, which means like a modern word might be to hassle yourself, hassle your craving. Don't let it establish itself in the mind and be comfortable and don't indulge it. Hassle it, harry it, give it a hard time. So like, you know, sometimes you hear monks complain, oh, in the West everything's too good, too comfortable, too much food, too many possessions and things. Well, use that experience to teach yourself. So say at the mealtime, if there is a lot of food, then learn to take an interest and delight in not following sense desire for certain foods. You don't have to give up every piece of food, but maybe just pick one particular kind of food that you might normally like and want to indulge in and just say, today I won't take that. And just reflect on it after you've not taken it. Go away, meditate and reflect, I didn't take that. And become very clear that you, know, you didn't die, and there was no great loss, and maybe there's even a sense of satisfaction in not following a sense desire and knowing that you can be independent of it giving up an, addic an addiction or an obsession if you become more and more aware of that kind of practice then it gets easier it becomes easier just to let things go you may just see the desires arise mentally during your day during your meditation but because you know they're impermanent, you just let them go. You don't have to go out seeking whatever it is you're desiring. You just know oh, it's just another desire. It comes, it goes. Maybe you get very good at it and you, during the very moment where you're tempted to follow a desire and indulge a desire, say like at the meal or the desire to look at somebody or to do something, at that very moment, you just say no, it's just a desire, you let go straight at that moment. Obviously if you practice that, it gets easier. Same with the other kinds of clinging. You know, if you notice you, how you get into dissatisfaction, arguments or disagreements or just discontent with other people because of their different views and different habits and ways of looking at things, their different attitudes, or teach yourself to catch your own attachment to your own particular view or ways of doing things. You question it. Is this a cause of suffering, me clinging to this view? Does my sense of self form and does it make me feel peaceful and happy or does it just stir me up more? How do I feel when I cling on to my view? 
And does it lead me to have to clash or have friction with other people, or even just to look down on them, even if I don't say or do anything with them? A lot of our practice is about looking and learning, becoming mindful. To a certain extent, doubting as well. Although we hear you know, doubt is a, a fetter to be abandoned, you know, we live and practice with doubt a lot of the time. We have to doubt. We have to question things. We have to be aware and clear that there's a lot that we don't know yet. Even the you know, the Dhamma that we've read and heard, we don't really know internally. So it's quite all right sometimes to doubt, doubt things as a way of learning and investigating. Obviously, there's a limit to that. We don't want to doubt to the point where we just give up the practice or get so confused we, don't, we can't function. But we can, you can live and practice with a certain amount of doubt, that's all right. It's actually quite healthy. You know, we do question things. We question our own reactions to things, our own thoughts, our own beliefs and views and attitudes. As you become a bit more familiar with this way of practice, becoming more aware of craving, more, more aware of clinging, it does give you a sense of well-being because you, as you understand this process better, then you, there's less that you feel is really going to make you suffer in life. Even if you still have plenty of clinging and attachment to deal with, you know how to deal with it and what you have to do you gradually get a sense of well-being and that helps improve our attitude you know, to life, to the practice, whatever we're having to deal with, whether it's physical ailments or mental suffering to do with dealing with other people, dealing with our own internal emotions. You get this sense of well-being that, you know, however bad it, it gets, it is just craving clinging and I know what I have to do to overcome it. It's a bit like that monk who asked for a teaching from the Buddha, what was his name, Puna, before he was going off to live in the, a wild place where they hadn't encountered Buddhist monks before. He asked for a teaching and the Buddha gave him a teaching about seeing how Sense objects are the cause for a suffering to arise when we attach to them and cling to them with like and dislike. Then the Buddha wanted to test him to see whether he had the right attitude for going off to a new area where the Buddha said the people are very fierce and uncivilized in that part of the country. Are you really ready to deal with them? What if they disrespect you and are rude to you when you go there? How will you do? deal with that. Venerable Puna said, well, I'll contemplate, well, if they don't speak very nicely to me, at least it's better than throwing clods of earth at me. And the Buddha said, well, what if they throw clods of earth at you? I think, well, better than bringing out their knives and 
chasing me with their knives. What if they bring out their knives and their knives are sharp and they start to stab you? They may even kill you. He said, well, it means I won't have to go and find the assassin. That, you know, some of the monks have been looking for assassins once they... I think it was a ref reference to the time when the, the, the group of monks got too over-enthusiastic with their body contemplation, became so depressed that they were hiring a guy to actually kill them. He said, well, I won't need to go and hire that guy. And these, these, these people can do it for me. He's just showing he had the right attitude, this, the know, knowing how to contemplate and the sense of well-being within himself. And you don't know what the future holds, but he had a sense of, he'd know how to contemplate, how to deal with it, whatever comes his way. And you see that with Buddhist monks, the longer they practice, you know, they, nobody can predict the future, know the future, what the world has, has in store for us individually. But they have a certain resilience and a certain mindfulness and wisdom that you can see will help them to deal with whatever life has to throw at them. If you reflect on it, we're actually very fortunate. We're still only just a little bit past the halfway mark of the Buddha-sasana. So hopefully these teachings will be around for us for a, a while yet and there'll be places to practice there's certainly plenty of support for us, material support. We're not struggling for that. So if you think about it, we're actually very fortunate. So anyway, I've given you a few reflections for your practice tonight. And maybe that's enough for now. <laughs>